Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and today we're going to be um, talking not about Pakistan but about Pakistan's western neighbor Iran where we've seen some massive protests uh, break out which are now currently in their fourth week at, at the time of this recording um, and they started uh, with the death of Masa Amini. Uh, who was arrested by Iran's morality police for not wearing a hijab uh, properly. Uh, and then the Iranian regime, according to news reports, claimed that she died of a heart attack. Um, her parents claimed that she was a healthy young woman um, and that she was beaten repeatedly uh, by, the, by the morality police and had significant wounds on her head, uh, which uh, were the cause of her death. And, and that led to a spark in Iran. And, and we've seen, as I said, four weeks of protests, brutal suppression by the Iranian regime. Close to 200 people um, have died, including, last I checked, 28 children, um, according to the New York Times report, at least that I read. Um, and what's been interesting in, in a way in, in these protests in Iran is that women have sort of led uh, the charge against the regime, um, and, and they're not going away. Um, and the protests are not going away. In fact, uh, we've seen videos on social media that even riot police in certain parts of the country have joined uh, the protesters. Uh, oil workers this week have joined the protesters. So we're going to be talking about all that's going on in Iran and what it all means uh, for both uh, the political economy of the Iranian regime itself, but also given Iran's influence in the region, what it means for the wider region. So joining me today is Dr. Nida Balurchi. Uh, she's Associate Director and Postdoctoral Associate at the Middle Eastern uh, Studies Program at Rutgers. Uh, her research focuses on the roles of religion, race, and secularism in the formation of Middle Eastern nation states. And uh, if I re remember correctly from my research on you, Dr. Balurchi, uh, you're working on a manuscript on Iran as well and, and, and the country. Um, so, you know, she's an expert uh, and has been following what's going on. So uh, looking forward to this conversation, uh, Nida, and thank you for joining Pakistan to me. Thank you for having me, Jose. Um, so I've... as I was saying before we began the recording, right, like given everything that's going on in Pakistan, um, the, the, what's going on in Iran, while it should be part of a mainstream conversation, is really isn't uh, part of the mainstream conversation in Pakistan. So I would love for you to first begin by contextualizing and, and sort of explaining uh, to our listeners what's going on in Iran and, and where did this sudden outburst of anger come from? Well, uh, I think you did a pretty good job of providing some background, and I would say that it's not necessarily sudden, right? There are these uh, protests that have become, uh, in Iran over the last five years, um, repeated, right? In the sense that 2017, 18, 19, there have been different types of protests, um, and they have been in differing size and for differing reasons. But this one in particular, as you said, um, was spurred by the September 16th events um, across multiple cities and towns in Iran as a reaction to the death of um, Kurdish-Iranian woman named Masa Jina Ahmini. Um, and as you also mentioned, the Gashta Ershad, what is otherwise known in English as the morality police, had arrested her for improper hijab or veiling. And she had been sent, as we understand it, to a re-education center um, and in essence, the, the reports are uh, signaling that she fell into a coma after suffering uh, significant uh, beating and, and, and with blunt objects. 
Um, the, the, the government, the Iranian state has said that she had a heart attack. I would just repeat that she was 22 years old with no uh, known medical history of heart conditions, um, which may not signify too much because again, Ms. Um, Amini was uh, an ethnic minority. She came from a lower socioeconomic uh, level. So she may not have had necessarily the most uh, modern or available medical assessment. But nevertheless, it's very unusual for a otherwise healthy 22 year old to suffer a heart attack. Um, her, what's very much was part of, uh, and, and the reason for some of the protesting is that her family did not bury her quietly. Usually uh, an indication of um, suspicion around government activity in Iran is if the government asks that you quietly bury your loved one, um, which was done here and her family refused to do so. Um, and basically what ends up happening is that in their town, their Kurdish Iranian town of Sarez, they held the funeral. And um, as, as you and your audience and others may know, is that funerals become a, sort of a place of protest, right? And not, on the, not only just the initial day in which a burial happens because of the mourning procession, but also the 40 day repeat, right? Uh, and, and so what happens is that you have more ceremonies in 40 days. But on day one, um, because of the circumstances, the suspicious circumstances surrounding her death and the fact that her family saw and, and, and maybe your audience members have seen pictures of her in a coma, uh, her face had bruises. And so that, made this very suspicious. Her family clearly did not believe that she suffered from a heart attack. And then Salhez and the, the, the burial of Masa Amini becomes the trigger point uh, for these protests that spread across the country. And um, they get picked up, uh, as I said, in over what has become over now 85 towns and cities. It includes not only um, minority towns like Salhez, um, but also the liberal north. It includes conservative towns like Bom and Mashhad, Isfahan. Um, and so uh, the protests have significantly picked up. Um, while we don't have reporting that they're in all the provinces, uh, they are all over Iran, um, 85 cities and towns. Thank you for that overview. And, and as you were describing the fact that her picture um, in the coma with bruises. Um, I have two siblings who are doctors and last I checked, um, heart attacks don't cause bruises on your face. Um, so, and I think the doctors tuning in here will tend to agree with that. Um, but one, a couple of interesting parallels sort of emerge uh, to me as somebody who follows Pakistan a lot closely, right? Is that um, we've seen in Pakistan, for example, Shia Hazaras being targeted by militants and, and terror groups. And um, just a few months ago, um, the last prime minister sort of was criticized in Pakistan because he refused to attend the funerals of Hazara in Quetta, Pakistan, which is in Pakistani Balochistan, um, uh, who again uh, protested the killings and sort of blocked roads and said they will not bury their dead until the prime minister comes and offers his condolences and, and, and commits to investigating what happened here. Um, um, in this case, in Iran, you have a Kurdish Iranian woman. Um, and, and at least in Pakistan, you know, folks on the periphery uh, from minority communities can make a little bit of noise, but it doesn't really need, lead to national mass 
protests. Um, so why is it and what is it um, that has been happening in Iran prior to this, right? Obviously, this is the catalyst, this is the inflection point. Uh, but what has it happened in Iran that uh, the death, uh, the brutal death of a woman, a minority woman in this case, um, has united this country and, and set things uh, on a course where obviously a lot of anger uh, and, uh, you know, people have come out on the streets to express their anger over it. Like what's been going on that so many people united despite she was a minority? Well, I think it's not because despite that she was a minority, I think it's because as we say in the United States, she checked a number of boxes. She was a woman and that is 60% of the Iranian population. She was a minority. That is at least over 50% of the Iranian population. She was not well off or middle class. That is a significant, significant portion of the Iranian population over, uh, you know, by the Iranian government's own estimates, 30% of their population lives under the poverty line. By sort of other estimates, it's over 50%, some as high as 70%. So we're talking that Ms. Amini basically, again, in sort of a very casual pedestrian way, checked three different boxes affecting over 50% of the population. And so in this sense, she is really everyone, right? She is relatively poor. She is a minority. She is a woman. And to the point, she is someone's sister. She is someone's daughter. And I think that it is one of the sort of this notion of uh, Egality um, and equality for women is one of the issues that has not been addressed in the decades of protests since 1979. That we haven't had a woman centered protest uh, while women have been part of, present, and, and a focal point, uh, particularly 2009, they have not been the driving force or the impetus for a protest. And here, because uh, Masamini was so many different people, so many encompassed so many different personages for so many different people. She becomes a trigger for all of those people. Um, and, and in particular, we do have to look at, um, you know, the, those demographics, right? Um, and that it is young women. She was 20, and that's the, the fourth category, that she was 22 years old. And what we have seen is, uh, the vast number of protesters between 16 and what we estimate to be 22, 23 years old. Um, so not only do we have all of these other lines, but we have a generational shift, right? We have the radicalization of Gen Z, as I've talked about. Um, and so for all of these different reasons, compounded by COVID and the economics of Iran, uh, I think this is why her death in the brutal way uh, she was murdered, has uh, set off these protests. You said something interesting there, the, the radicalization of Gen Z. Um, and I would love for you to unpack that a bit, because obviously some of the survey data I've seen and some of the reporting I've read, um, mainly Western media in this case, has talked about this um, secularization of Iranians, um, right? That the Islamic regime has uh, pushed religion onto people so much that there's a backlash and survey data tends to support that view. Um, but obviously now we're seeing a new phase of that. And I, I would love for you to explain to the audience what that radicalization, radicalization looks and feels like. Um, again, primarily from a Pakistani perspective, the median age in Pakistan is 25. So it's, it's very similar in terms yeah. of the demographics. Uh, and obviously, we're seeing some of these challenges in Pakistan. So 
what is different about this generation? How do they view the world and, and the regime that under, under which that they live in? Well, they view it very differently. Uh, I, I uh, wrote about this in USA Today a couple of weeks ago, um, that this generation, Gen Z, is very much different from their predecessors in the largest sort of uh, protest movement that we've seen probably, which was in 2009, the Green Movement and how that generation was seeking more their vote. The question there was, where is my vote? And it was largely considered a, a middle-class, quasi-elite uh, sort of revolution that lasted from beginning to end maybe seven months in its totality um, that really was about reforming the system, that it was about the system being transparent, it was about the system being accountable for the fact that it professed to have democratic or quasi-democratic elections. And so 2009 uh, was very much a reform uh, protest. And then protesters were told, don't ask too much. Those that started leaning and questioning the system were told even by uh, the political elite, by those who have been um, put under house arrest, um, and, and who had run for uh, the presidential office, that's okay. Be patient, this is about reform, don't rock the system. And for the, for the most part, um, the protesters sort of adhered to that, right? Um, it was very much uh, also a cautionary tale from the generation above. Those revolutionaries who were running for office as well as the protesters' parents said, we don't need a revolution, we already had one and that was enough. Look what has happened. Look what happened in 1980, there, you know, the Iraqi invasion. So that this idea is that revolution causes chaos, it causes the potential for invasions, it causes unforeseen events. And so, and, and it was very much that we, this was a big moment, we'll do it again, we'll try again, the system will adjust. So we had one revolution, don't make things worse. And that generation largely listened. They also lost friends and family members because, again, so many people were rounded up, imprisoned, or jailed, um, and tortured by the, the authorities that that was its own lesson. We are now, uh, how many years later, 12, 13 years later, and over the course of um, more than a decade, more than a dozen years, we have a new generation in which they've seen things not get better that that lesson of right they don't know what happened in 79 they don't know what life before 1979 was like they don't know what the war the iran iraq war was like but what they do know is their lives have not gotten better they do know that their prospects for the future have not gotten better and and sorry and to interrupt you here just a quick follow-up stream of consciousness thought would it be safe to say that um, the folks protesting in the Green Revolution, um, probably the, the, the folks now on the street, many of them uh, were actually uh, the children of the folks protesting uh, at that time, and they saw the brutal suppression. And as you said, things did not improve, even though it was quite a conservative, keep it safe kind of a protest movement. So their formative years in so many ways to, were to see their loved ones, their parents, their uncles, aunts, grandparents, maybe in some instances, um, be brutally suppressed and not achieve uh, through a more conservative approach uh, what they were aiming to achieve. Well, not only the seeing, I think what's very important here is the hearing. 
Um, I think that, uh, you know, in uh, societies that do have a, who are, who tend towards communication, particularly or both oral and oral traditions, um, a lot is learned and transmitted through hearing and just the communal uh, sort of nature of politics and households talking about what had been hoped for versus the fact that those hopes had not been achieved. Um, and, and I'm sure there is a, a list that one could go through and hearing about that over and over or hearing about regrets, um, I think has a significant impact um, on this Generation Z in combination with the fact that they don't see improvement and they don't see that they have opportunities and they don't see hope. Um, you know, hope is a double-edged sword in the sense that it's what keeps you going but it also is what can sort of be the, the driving knife in your heart. And if you don't have it, then right, the, the prospects for the future and your willingness to reform or maintain some status quo goes with your hope. Um, and so I think this Gen Z, particularly because of social media, is much more informed, much more educated about the world around them, the opportunities they don't have, and small ideas of freedom um, and what that means. The, the little things, uh, you know, when we talk about a 16 year old who just says freedom is, you know, wind in my hair, right? That is something that billions of people around the world take for granted. Um, and so I, I think that is part of the radicalization when your hope and your sense of freedom is so small, um, then you increasingly think you have nothing to lose. And, and before I go to sort of how the government and the state is responding to this, um, on the protest side as well, um, you know, again, things that I've read and followed suggest that this is a decentralized protest movement, that there are there's no central focal point, um, which means that, you know, it, it is far more complex in terms of putting it down um, and also far more grassroots um, in terms of what's causing this, right? Which is also a concern if you're on the other side, which is the state, and we'll get to that in a bit. Is that true? Is this really a genuine grassroots movement that has emerged where, you know, there is no hierarchical sort of organizational structure that one can point to and say, you know what, these are the organizations or groups that have sort of catalyzed this this is like truly organic in, in the way this has this has bubbled up i mean as far as we know and we understand there is not a leader despite uh, some proclamations to the otherwise there is not one person uh, who is leading this or who has sparked this or is the sort of the model for this right um the one thing we learn about uh, protest movements is you can organize one, but it doesn't mean that people will come, right? The, in the United States, there is that movie Field of Dreams, and the line is, if you build it, they will come. That is actually not the case. Um, and so you can organize and you can ask people and beseech people, you can even pay people, but that doesn't mean that they will come. It doesn't mean that they will stay, importantly. Um, we're now one month in, so, and we'll get to um, Zahedan and, and everything that's going on in Baluchistan and Sistan, but it doesn't also mean that new protests will pop up. It doesn't mean 85 cities and towns are going to join you. Um, and so I think that there is um, that connectivity, that sort of, uh, those four factors that we talked about, what, 
you know, why Masamini, what sort of lines did she cross or the boxes that she checked that people felt so empathetic or understanding or angry about um, what was done to her. Um, and so that you have to, for example, on the extreme end of when I talk about sort of the radicalization of Gen Z, um, there is a, a very, very old woman in Rasht, uh, which is a northern liberal city traditionally, who walked outside and you can see she's very old because she has difficulty walking. Um, she has white hair and she just took her headscarf off and the, the images from the back of her and she just sort of barely walking whips it around and just says i'm not going to wear this anymore um and so you there aren't right you can't predict those kind of moments um because it really does have to resonate the moment has to resonate with people um so uh, i know that there are allegations um and and theories that these protests have been organized from outside of Iran. Um, my response to that is, even if you have one or two or three uh, protests that are organized from elsewhere, why do you have 85 now? Why, why did three, four, five, six protests spread across 85 towns and cities? Um, and so, uh, I, one, again, very much doubt the, the organizational conspiratorial notion. It's a, it's a statement that's repeated um, every time something goes wrong. Um, and then two, uh, even if that were to be the case, um, it does not uh, sort of explain away the proliferation of protests. And more to the point, it does not excuse the brutal beating and murder of children. Nobody made the government beat and kill children. Yeah, and I think um, on the flip side also, if one holds the government's argument to be true that these are foreign orchestrated protests at such a mass scale over four weeks, um, then there are other questions that should be asked about the competence of the state and its intelligence agencies. Um, which then begs the question, well, how many people from those agencies and organizations have been fired and held to account? Uh, because clearly then that's a failure, right? And, and so um, that question, I mean, obviously it, it is a bogus argument to say these are foreign orchestrated uh, uh, protests, but even if you take that on face value, then the follow-up question to the state would be, well, how many people have you let go of and what accountability has been done uh, because clearly these are intelligence failures that the national security, a strong national security state like Iran um, has so many uh, spies and, and foreign conspirators going all around 85 cities and towns in Iran and, and getting people out on the, uh, on the streets. Right, and that was right. The, the the notion of intelligence failure was made when we saw right the the assassinations of nuclear scientists and and uh, Iran's General Soleimani. So those when when it is uh, very clear or when it is a, a credible factor, the Iranian government doesn't have a problem saying it and also making accusations against its own intelligence services. Um, and so to your point, absolutely. Um, 
but also to sort of the, the nature of good governance, regardless of who organizes what uh, you as the uh, the organization that has monopoly on violence are not forced to kill anybody. Yeah, and, and which brings us to the other side, the state's response. Obviously, brutal violence has been deployed. The besiege has been uh, out and about and then beating people up and killing hundreds of people now. Um, but then also I heard on BBC um, that uh, there were statements from the leadership that what happened to Massa was wrong, uh, shouldn't have happened, and they expressed regret over it. What has been the broader political discourse um, and, and actions that have been taken beyond the brutal suppression um, in, in Iranian politics uh, in the context of all that has happened? Uh, what have you seen and heard? Is it any different than what they did in the last few protest movement in, in, in terms of trying to suppress everything? Or is there a faction or a conversation happening um, that perhaps the state and its apparatus has to look inwards in terms of what it has gotten wrong over the years uh, to lead to this genuine outpouring of anger and protest? Well, I mean, I, uh, in terms of sort of looking inward, right, this, we're not looking at a reformist administration anymore. This is not a, a Khatami, and most certain, right, at, in, in the least, who he himself, when faced with a constitutional crisis, um, backed away from it. Uh, when you had the university protests in 1999, backed away from it um, in order to sort of safeguard the system. Um, and we've seen what the system has done to Khatami um, as a result, right? Uh, he's He's been silenced. Uh, you can't, uh, one cannot uh, put up his picture. Um, and, and so sort of his adherence to the system um, has been repaid, has it not? Um, similarly, uh, if you had uh, an administration under Rouhani um, that tried to deal and, and have some set of good governance rules to manage expectations in terms of the economy, um, you don't have that with Raisi. Uh, this, this election, this very much sort of set and geared election that transpired to put him into office aligned all the office all the offices and, and sort of the bureaucracy under one leadership with one mindset and that is not a reformist mindset that is not a, a humanitarian mindset if, if we sort of thought of that prior to this um and so i do not foresee even though there's an apology the apology is because they were caught the the apology is because the protests have cost the system the apology is because the, the system is embarrassed at this point, right? And nobody is believing uh, sort of the conspiratorial theory that this is as a, you know, as a result of uh, outside organizers. And so this is why the administration is apologizing um, is because they were caught doing something. And, you know, in, in previous situations, sometimes uh, things will go awry, I, I, uh, not necessarily intentionally, um, you know, but that is something that transpired, uh, for instance, uh, the photojournalist Sarah Kazemi, from all intents, um, her murder uh, was by many considered accidental and then the government had to cover it up and, but her torture was not. 
Um, and, and there was a lot of work to be done after that. And there was a huge international outcry um, because she was a dual citizen. Uh, in this situation, right, we have another situation. We've had women arrested and abused since 2004, um, 2003. Um, but this is, right, we are decades later. The fact that this is still happening makes it egregious. It means that uh, it is a discriminatory system an apartheid system and one that doesn't care about women and their autonomy over their bodies. Um, and that is increasingly outrageous uh, to more and more people in Iran. On the sort of Eastern side, uh, I want to get to what's happened in Zaidan, Sistan, Balochistan and get your perspective on this. Obviously, it says the stories I've read and, and there have been amnesty has put out a report on this as well, that almost 100 Balochi protesters have been killed. Um, and, and a few weeks ago, I remember reading that, uh, or a few days ago, maybe I'm getting confused with my timeline, that the senior Iranian general or military commander was also killed in, in this region in terms of the insurgency that, that's brewing over there. Um, is the current wave of violence, these hundred protesters that have been killed um, and what's going on over there linked to this protest movement? Or is there something, is there another challenge here to the state and the regime in terms of what's going on? Uh, well, I think it's a little, well, there are two answers to it uh, that we can take a look at. Just for context, let me say that, uh, so a protest broke out in Sept on September 30th in Zahedan, um, where there is a very large ethnic Baluch group who are um, Sunni, and security forces opened fire on the crowd that was protesting, um, and they were protesting after Friday prayers. And so the initial count was at 70. It has continued to climb, and it includes a 16-year-old boy, Erbal Zehi. Um, and so the Iranian state media basically characterized that protest as a protest by extremists, that it wasn't even really a protest. It was that they were uh, attacking the police station there in Zahedan. And so, uh, and the initial reports were that five members of the Revolutionary Guard were uh, killed. Um, what gets lost in that story um, and connects very well with uh, sort of the protests uh, around and because of Masa Amini is that the, there, is an, there is an allegation, a standing allegation against the regional police chief that he raped a 15-year-old girl uh, who was in custody at the port of Charbahar, and which is in Sassan Baluchistan province as well. And so what you have is the Friday prayer leader in a small town uh, called Rask, and he made this accusation against the police chief about this rape. And so uh, one, it is an accusation. Two, we don't know why a 15-year-old is in custody at a port, but to the point of hopelessness and economics, uh, there are implications that of trafficking, of human trafficking. Um, and so uh, protests, when the, the Friday prayer leader in Rask basically uh, announces it, makes the accusation, protests start, right, sort of moving from this town. Um, and there was a planned protest on September 30th. Um, and so after Friday prayers to go to the police station um, and make this accusation of rape against the regional police chief, um, and some protesters, from what we understand from reports of the AP, picked up stones and threw them 
at police officers and the building um, who then the officers opened fire on the protesters. Um, and so this is kind of the sort of the details that I understand it. Um, but to your point of, do we see a, a something bigger? Um, well, what we see is protests about two ethnic girls being raped and one of them, be, and one being raped and one of them being murdered. And so for, again, uh, to the point of how these protests are different, they're different because they are about the bodily autonomy of women, young, susceptible, innocent women uh, abused and, and raped and murdered. Um, and so uh, to your point about sort of the larger picture of uh, Zahedan and Sistan Baluchistan, has there been discrimination? Um, yes. Um, do I think that there have been some of these other events happening there? Yes, I do. Um, and, and to be clear, discrimination in that province has supersedes and comes before the Islamic Republic. Um, it is notoriously underdeveloped. Um, it has uh, one of the, we previously kind of talked a little bit about Jandala, so I'll refer back to the Khatami administration. Um, before Jandala started, became more extreme and, and started receiving questionable funding is what I'll call it. Uh, they actually were about uh, in, uh, about development. The, the, their sort of attacks on the government were attacks to get things from the government that they thought that the people of Sistan Baluchistan deserved. Schools, uh, job training, and, and, and sort of a, a way to offset the lost wages when their children, child labor, um, went to school, right? That sort of the argument was, well, we can't afford to send our kids to school because we need the money. So they needed job training, they needed wage offsets. Um, and so these were actually what were some of sort of the reasons for these initially uh, low level attacks. And the Khatami administration started sort of planning and working with them. Um, and then you had the election of Aman and Ajad. And this sort of gets wiped off. Uh, those low level sort of um, reform minded attacks become much bigger, much more significant. Um, and then you have a back and forth between the government and Jandala. And then the nature of Jandala changes. Um, also significantly with the assassination of its leader. Um, and so this is some of the sort of the background of that, that province and what has been going off. Um, it's compounded uh, by the sort of the central authorities uh, or any authorities sort of discrimination against um, the, the ethnic groups. Um, I think it's uh, Amnesty International who talks about um, how they, the, the Baluch minority uh, constitutes about 19% of executions in Iran, um, while their population constitutes 5%. Um, the Iranian government will tell you that that province, uh, as you know, sits uh, in the south. It is sort of a hub for drug smuggling. Um, this is probably why you should have good governance and development plans. Um, if that is the case, right? Um, and, and so uh, these are the very complicated um, issues there. Yeah, and I think part of the what you were describing was resonating with me about Pakistani Balochistan and the issues there. 
um, to which the state authorities respond with similar things. It's smuggling, it's foreign terror financing, um, and that's causing the insurgency. And so we have to go after them. Um, but then if you ask the question, well, um, you're also spending a whole lot of money on fencing the border, for example, how does smuggling happen when you claim to have fenced the border and have spent a lot of money on security? Uh, well, that's an uncomfortable question. And as we joke in Pakistani uh, lingo, that a black uh, Vigo uh, or a black sort of pickup truck will show outside your door if you ask these types of questions because it's not going to lead to a good outcome for you. It's uncomfortable questions. So that part resonates with me in terms of, you know, even on the other side of the, of the border in Iran as well. Um, you briefly touched on um, the, the state sort of arguing that, you know, foreigners are conspiring and leading people to agitate and things like that. Outside of that, what has been the role of the international community? Um, I haven't really followed that. I would love your thoughts on it. My own thinking on this, um, just as sort of a broader observer of geopolitical trends, right? Obviously, um, right now, oil prices are through the roof. The United States and the West has been engaging with the Iranian government on sort of the nuclear talks and bringing Iran back to the table. Um, that motivation, uh, based on my own high-level, very loose analysis, is that you know the motivation to bring Iran into the fold goes up because of the oil cuts and prices rising, right? And the regime, if I'm advising them, would say, actually, you have a lot more leverage here um, than you've had in the recent past. Um, so what has been going on on the international front? How has the West in particular, but even regional countries, responded to uh, what's going on in Iran, especially given Iran's own role in places like Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, et cetera. Like what, what is the international community doing uh, about these protests? Not much of anything. Uh, the international community uh, has been very quiet, uh, almost uh, silent. The United States did enact uh, new sanctions on the morality police and uh, different other personnel who would not be leaving Iran anyway. Um, there, the Canadian government uh, has been looking to seize assets, um, I think for family members of government officials. Uh, Canada is home to, I'm gonna say dozens of family members of officials and former officials who have brought billions of dollars into Canada um, Canada says that it is looking at uh, some of those individuals to question them about their their finances and their funds. Um, Sounds the, a lot like Pakistanis in London and the United States and Canada as well. So, um, you know, everybody likes uh, immigrants with money. <laughs> uh, it's a good tax base. Hopefully they're actually contributing some something productive uh, as well. Um, the, the German government has proposed uh, submitting some sanctions to the EU, which, uh, as you know, that will not happen. Um, so largely, uh, it is, it, there's not even been a lot of talk or attention. Um, there has, in the last week or so, uh, at least some attention has increased, um, you know, via uh, largely uh, social media in the sense that Shakira, Dua Lipa from the UK, the Obamas, um, and, 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 you know, a number of other sort of powerful, wealthy, or entertainment personalities have 
sort of signaled via social media what's going on in Iran. Um, and, and that is, you know, an improvement as over what it was before. Uh, the New Yorker has run a few things, um, but in terms of the international community, there is nothing, I mean, there's significant, there's nothing significant um, happening or transpiring. And that, of course, is, as you mentioned, largely um, around oil prices. Even though Iran is under sanctions, I would call uh, everyone's intention to the international north-south trade corridor. It is the, the mechanism by which Russia gets what it calls parallel imports um, and what I say is largely a sanctioned evasion mechanism. Uh, it wasn't designed that way, but is a transportation corridor that runs from St. Petersburg into India uh, through the Chaharbahar port. Um, right? And in, in the sense that when it started in, in 2000, 2002, it was to cut costs and increase the speed at which uh, countries and, and companies were able to deliver and receive goods bypassing the Suez Canal. Um, and so we have seen over the last several months uh, significant increases um, of the INTC's usage, uh, significant increases uh, for Russia, uh, and, and thereby that also means Iran. Um, and, and the usage of the vast majority of it runs through Iran. Um, there is expansion into the Central Asian states. Um, and to, so to the large point of it, uh, you don't want to, or one does not want to, while the Ukraine war is going on and, and gas and oil prices, uh, Iran being a, a major producer of both of those, um, needs to in some sense still get uh, its much reduced gas and oil, um, right? Not just in terms of quantity, but the price of um, what it's producing onto the market. And it does that um, not only through China, but the, the transportation corridor. And it receives goods in that way too. Um, so there are larger uh, sort of geoeconomic and geopolitical considerations that don't even bring us to the JCPOA um, which I'm not, um, Iran to your, your question, uh, presumably has more leverage. Yes. Now than it did, um, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, only because there is not sort of a solution to this, at, which has been compounded by OPEC plus, um, and the Saudi cut in production, which was expected. Um, and, and so these are the complicating factors uh, for many of the governments, particularly the German government, which still doesn't have an agreement with the Bahrainis for gas. Um, and, and, you know, uh, given that the Germans sold, uh, had questionably sold uh, parts of their last shipment uh, from the Bahrainis, the Bahrainis are, are holding their line. Um, and so Germany is having a tough time. The United States is having a tough time. Um, and if the United, but I will say this, um, the Biden administration has not seemed to want the JCPOA for the last several years. Um, and so I do not think that it is really about the nuclear deal because this could, the nuclear deal could have been done on day one. Um, and there have been rumors in D.C. about somehow the JCPOA going to the floor, the House floor. Um, I find them nonsensical. Uh, I think this is about the geoeconomics uh, of oil and gas. Yeah, and I so, think you. Largely, I should, I should rephrase that in terms of geoeconomics, the world economy. 
Yeah, and I think you mentioned Chabahar, where Chabahar is a strategic port for India as a competitor to Gwadar in Pakistan, which is backed by China. Um, yes. And obviously, India's oil imports from Russia on discounted prices have gone up. But India is also a strategic partner for a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, and also the recipient of S-400 uh, systems from Russia, but also has had this carve out for Iranian oil in terms of swaps. And I believe a few weeks ago, um, some sanctions were placed by the United States on an Indian organization or a bank. I, I forget what exactly it was, but it was something that hasn't happened in a long time. So again, you know, these are sort of the as you said, the complicating factors that go into this decision making. And of course, we see um, the oil price pressure sort of leading to an opening with Venezuela um, after years and years where Chevron obviously now is going to potentially um, go back. Um, and, and the argument being made is based on a good faith dialogue between Maduro and his right team. So the oil price and the Russian invasion of Ukraine obviously is making things a lot of more complex for a lot of governments, including the U.S. here. Um, but on on, I want well, to hear... just also remind everyone the U.S. has elections coming. Yes. So uh, the, those pricings are very important for the Democratic Party in the sense that has the Biden administration uh, handled sort of the post-COVID economy well? Has it handled world international affairs well? Um, there have been charges, you know, by a number of uh, top world economists against the Fed in terms of what it has done um, to not ease inflation uh, fast enough. Um, there are threats of a looming recession, um, all impacting the elections that are coming in about one month, just short of a month. Um, and, and, and then on the flip side of that, right, if, if the, there is a sort of a, a recession uh, after that, what happens in two years. Um, and so the in the larger context of um, sort of world politics and American politics, um, those pricings matter uh, largely for the Biden administration, the Democratic Party, um, which is already projected to have, we'll say, difficulties uh, in a month. And, and inflation is number one or number two issue in all, almost all polls um, in terms of what the voters care about. So, you know, obviously it's, it's causing a lot of angst. I want to, on the international community side, what's your perspective on the muted response? Let's call it that, right? Because my own thinking on this is, again, as an outsider is, on the one hand, it the international community should care more about what's going on. But on the other sort of maintaining this muted silence, so to speak, actually strengthens these protests because if, if, if the United States or the U UK and others start speaking up more about this or you know, are seen to be uh, supporting these protesters, then the regime can respond and say, look, we told you this was a foreign conspiracy. How, where do you lie on that spectrum in terms of the, the costs and benefits of more intervention or more uh, conversations in the international community about what's going on. You are completely correct in, in terms of what the flip side is, yes. Um, so I'm in agreement on that. Uh, so, the, and, and largely um, because of 1953, and then when the 19, right, when 
the sort of the, the Anglo-American uh, removal of Prime Minister Mossadegh in lieu of the Shah and what becomes right then decades afterwards. Um, and Iranians and people around the world have blamed um, that event on uh, the United States and Britain for the revolution. Um, and so some of the lessons to be learned here is uh, do not intervene. Uh, even if you think that you are going to be doing something positive, it can absolutely blow back. And even if you are not responsible, you will get blamed for it. So it is best to uh, not undercut the legitimacy of these protests. Um, and so your point is taken there. Uh, and I think it is very accurate. Uh, those outside of Iran, very much uh, sort of the anti-Islamic Republic activists, very much would like, I think, the government to do something, the Biden administration to do something. Uh, it has, uh, despite the fact that I call this the sanctions, not doing something. Uh, I think it is largely the right move. Uh, I think people who have thought a little bit more about this understand that this does have to be um, an Iranian moment. Uh, I think that in essence, what the Iranian people want um, is very much right. There have been significant calls really for media attention. Um, and at least in, in my feed, there have been letters to, right, uh, to international organizations. What is unfortunate is the lack of response by international organizations, organizations that espouse human rights, organizations that espouse women's rights. Um, it is disappointing uh, at, let's say, at the best uh, that those organizations are non-responsive um, and have not made statements. But I think what activists and particularly Iranian people would like to see is somehow what we've seen, um, excuse me, the calls for Elon Musk to do something, um, which I initially kind of, uh, as I'm laughing, uh, I did find them a little bit laughable because uh, you have a logistics problem. Uh, you have multiple logistics problems. Um, and, and, and I think that, let's say, some, for instance, somebody at NASA knows better, uh, an Iranian activist at NASA or anywhere else knows better, there are logistics problems in terms of even if you can get this large uh, piece of equipment into Iran, we won't even get into how do you get it into Iran, but you get it into Iran. Then you have to place it, which means it can be seen. And then the third problem is you actually have to have a connection, right? And to, in order to get a connection, you have to have some permission or approvals. Elon Musk can't just say, I'm going to put a satellite over Iran. I mean, there is air rights, right? You can't just throw up a satellite that close to a country in its air and expect it to let you keep that satellite up. I mean, these are sort of the logistical problems. Um, and, and there's an international organization that actually you would, one would have to, the Iranian government would uh, have to give permission to for this satellite to be, to be up and running. Um, and that's not gonna happen. So I'm not really sure how those three logistical steps um, are overcome uh vpns right uh, so these are sort of the basic things um and very much the the protesters that i have communicated with um have said that at maximum they don't want this government at minimum 
they have to be on the streets doing this and engaged in this protest in order to make change, at minimum to get rid of mandatory hijab. So there's a large spectrum of sort of demands and wants back to your question about the organic nature of the protest. There isn't really an agreement in terms of what people want because people want so many things, which brings us um, full circle to the Iranian song, Bataya, right? For the sake of, that's been nominated for a Grammy now for all the different reasons that people are protesting. Um, so I, as, as, uh, as inclined as I am to say intervention is, is uh, can solve things, we know that it can't. Uh, historically, we know that, logistically, we know that, uh, and the Iranians know that because they saw that in Iraq, they saw that in Afghanistan, they've seen that in Libya. Uh, it is the very reasons why the, the green movement generation didn't right, engage or make their protest about revolution is because they saw what was around them. Uh, this Gen Z, because they don't feel like they have hope for the future, this is why they've been radicalized. Um, and, and so uh, intervention, I think somebody did a study, there have been three times in the 20th century that the United States intervened in another country and the outcome was considered positive. Hmm. And, and I, I, I can't give you more details. I don't remember exactly which three moments. Um, I would argue Yugoslavia. And to be clear, they were very small. Yeah. They were smaller. Uh, they were not revolutions and coups and they were small moments so yeah I, as you said that i was thinking maybe bosnia um rwanda maybe but rwanda was a bit late um mm. i don't know yeah that's and maybe i looked that up after this recording that's an interesting tidbit to know about um last question for you um and again this has been fascinating and highly informative and educative for me uh personally speaking um, where does Iran go from here? Um, there have been so many movements like this in Iran, um, not like this, but protest movements. Um, and, and the regime has shown an amazing ability to quash it and be brutal, um, to deploy violence and, and to really um, break um, the back of protest movements in Iran. They've been really good at it, right? I mean, um, as a Pakistani American, I think that the Pakistani state is brutal um, and can be very brutal, but nowhere close to what Iran can be in terms of the ability to suppress things. Um, wh where do you see things going in terms of scenarios? Is Do you have hope? Like, you know, are, are you, uh, or is it that the Gen Z is also going to realize the hard way that this regime is not that easy to push back against? I think they're gonna learn the hard way. Um, I. Uh, when it comes to sort of the poli-sci camp, I am, uh, I think, a realist. Um, I, I was in the Middle East at the sort of, two, not sort of, I was in the Middle East in 2009. I was in Syria and 2010 uh, and, and, and afterwards. And so um, as everybody was euphoric about the Arab, you know, the, the quintessential notion of it is of the Arab Spring, the Arab protests, uh, I really just looked at everybody and I was like, Either you're very idealistic, you don't have a sense of history, um, 
or you're being willfully blind to sort of how revolutions work. Uh, because what you really, I mean, in essence, historically, what happens is when you have um, the ouster of a government or a regime that doesn't involve total dis uh, disintegration of a country, the sort of the new government that comes in purges different levels of society, um, denies them property, takes their money away, takes their voting rights away, takes power away. A whole slew of things happen to different levels of society, particularly the top and the middle. Um, and, and we see this really in the Middle East in the 50, right, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. And, and, and so historically, this is what we have in precedent. And then we can talk about what happens uh, in the last 20 years, right? It hasn't changed in that way. And in fact, what we've seen for most cases um, in the last uh, 15 years is basically the same with an increase in human rights violations. We haven't seen people, um, citizens given more rights, more participation, more emancipation movements. Um, what we have seen uh, is the repression of these emancipatory movements. What were protests or revolutions for some version of emancipation um, resulted in the opposite. If they didn't resolve in the quite literally either slave trade markets uh, or the disintegration of state territories. Um, and, and so uh, not to be completely negative, but to be realistic, uh, the Iranian government uh, has shown over the course of the last 43 years that it does have a monopoly on modes of violence and it has no problems uh, using them. Um, and, and so, uh, not that I have, right, that any of us have uh, sort of a crystal ball, but I think that it will use it um, and hope that they understand that reforms are, even though you have the radicalization of what is a very young population. I mean, think about when you were 16 years old, you know, I'm, I'm sure millions if not billions of people around the world were kind of on their soapbox. They had ideals, they wanted little things as a and, and big things um, and, and their kids. Uh, and so one would hope, uh, again, sort of the realistic view, but one would hope uh, that uh, some reform will come out of this. And usually protests in Iran are, uh, regardless of what's said, uh, the aim is to move the needle a little bit and and oh. i would hope that some sane people within the government and the state realize that these are their own children and these are the future of their own society and what they're protesting for is you know not super radical things as you said they're protesting for feeling the wind in their hair um and and for autonomy and and for the very basic things that any human being in any country um, has the right uh, to have. And um, I think uh, it, it's one of the things that even I remember in some protests in, in sort of northwestern Pakistan and things like that, uh, you know, people would argue that, you know, instead of pushing these people away, you need to hug them because they are your very own, they're your future. Um, and if you don't hug them, and if you don't engage with them, then you're going to push them towards 
violent methods. And those violent methods are only going to destroy your society more and more over time. They're going to polarize things and um, and they will, um, at the end of the day, I think, and as you said, like hope is sort of the dagger to your heart that when that hope goes away, a human being is willing to do a lot of damage to a lot of people because they frankly do not care. And I think the last thing, at least this region needs is another country sort of on the cusp of, of something, uh, some chaos that we've seen in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, um, even Lebanon now with its economic crisis and things like that. So um, maybe maybe folks in the regime realize that reform is the only path forward, but we will see. Um, before I let you go, um, one last question. Uh, mm -hmm. What are two or three books that you would recommend people pick up and read uh, on Iran, on modern day Iran and, and, and its political economy? Sure. Well, I'm so uh, in terms of political economy, there needs there's work to be done. Uh, I will tell you, I'm going to give you actually two authors that I think are um, pretty great. Uh, I don't think it'll come as any surprise. My first one is Irvan Abrahimian, um, quintessentially the historian of Iran, uh, Iran's 20th century. Um, so detailed, so um, meticulous with his notes and his resources. Um, I would sort of say um, anything after 1980 is much more approachable. Um, I highly recommend Khomeiniism. It's a collection of essays um, where Abrahamian largely turns some assumptions about the Islamic Republic on its head. Um, and and he has uh, more recently uh, written on 1953. He has um, some very introductory books on Iranian history um, in the 20th century. So uh, if that is right, um, there's not much he has not touched upon. Um, I would also say, uh, because we have talked about human rights and the role of women, um, Merjam Konkler, K-U-E-N, K-L-E-R. Uh, she used to be at Princeton. She's now overseas. She does comparative politics, largely Iran and Indonesia, I believe it is. Um, and her works include titles like uh, Female Religious Authority in Shia Islam. Um, she has a forthcoming book, The Rule of uh, Law in the Islamic Republic of Iran, Power, Institutions, and Prospect for Reform. Um, she engages on women's rights, um, and, and particularly uh, she engages Mohsen Kadivar's um, more recent work on Hag al-Nas, uh, Human Rights and Reformist Islam, um, on ideas of Islam, democracy, uh, and rights. Um, and so I think uh, for those subjects, she's really great um, and, and probably doesn't get due attention. Um, I immediately told you uh, one other thing I would sort of say very differently. Uh, a lot of artwork and audiovisuals come out of Iran. Um, and I think if one is interested in, uh, I've seen increasingly, right, uh, the handprints, there's a lot of visual images with handprints and blood. Or last week, uh, somebody basically uh, put red coloring in all the fountains in Tehran. Um, and so these are actually, they hearken back to the 80s and the revolution, um, and they are picked up from Shiism and, and martyrology. Um, and so that now, and they have been used against the Islamic Republic, notably in 2009. Um, and so I think a book that introduces you phenomenally well um, to the visuals um, 
of this is Staging a Revolution. Also an older book, uh, Peter Chalkowski and Hemi Dabashi. Um, it's in color, uh, it's hardback, it's great. Uh, Christine Gruber in Chicago uh, has subsequently in more recent years uh, is a scholar that kind of works off of or uh, does similar things. Uh, Staging a Revolution is great. In terms of political economy, uh, I think that uh, there's much lacking. Um, one person that I have read over the years is Javad Salahi Isfahani. He's a professor of economics in the College of Science at Virginia Tech. Um, I think he, if I remember correctly, was previously at Harvard for a fellowship, the Middle East Institute. Um, otherwise, we largely get uh, it sort of the political economy of Iran through the World Bank and, and very uh, sort of odds and end places. Um, but he tends to, uh, I'm, he tends to kind of take a look at things and try and give a, a more, I think, sound uh, look, um, so. Thanks for those recommendations. And I had promised you that was going to be my last question, but I do have a follow-up if you if okay. you don't mind me asking, and I'll let you go. Um, why is there a lack of is it because it's largely a closed society and access is hard? Uh scholars can't get in. Like I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on what's the holdup or what's the barrier there. I mean, you would think, you know, there's so many Iranians who are doctors and engineers and are in Silicon Valley and create all these VPNs and uh, are at NASA and, and all these the propulsion jets. Um, I'm not sure why there are not really a whole lot of economists or um, sort of why there's a lack. Uh, I, there is a, there is somebody who is very much up and coming, but um, I, there, I think access to transparent information is a problem. And so those who are uh, in economics don't necessarily want to put their reputation on um, data that isn't verifiable, but, uh, you know, those of us in the social sciences and humanities and, and the human rights defenders, um, sometimes we don't have the most verifiable information. Um, and you have to make those kind of caveats. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people, since I'm in DC, I'll say this, there are a lot of people who say, well, this analysis depends on, you know, reconstruction in Syria. Well, it depends on XYZ. And I'm like, well, XYZ is not gonna happen anytime soon. That doesn't prevent them from putting out these reports um, and, and so you have to give those caveats and, and, and Professor Iswani, you know, he, he does that. Uh, and, and so, yeah. Dr. Neda, thank you so much for taking out the time for being so insightful for educating me and our listeners about what's going on in Iran. And I know that you're a realist and, and obviously, and I tend to agree with you that, you know, revolutions are not that easy, especially against, uh, oppressive suppressive state machinery that has a monopoly or violence and even if you succeed the next steps aren't uh any prettier um than what existed before uh but i think um as again uh, a young pakistani who lived through a uh, military dictatorship and then saw a transitional democracy take place flawed and floundering uh as it may be but at least it gives an outlet 
to people to try and, and have reform or conversations. And um, I hope that the- I completely agree. And if I can interrupt you, I wouldn't say that just, uh, again, over the past several decades, these protests have moved the needle. And the fact that this is about women, uh, if I can throw out another data point for you, who make up 60% of the Iranian universities, um, and so, but are 20% of the labor force, who get less than 50% of the wage that men get. So, and are denied, right, their requests to divorce, custody to children, ability to serve as judges. And so if these protests, what is what we might otherwise call a revolutionary episode, not a full revolution, but uh, maybe a revolutionary episode, if this moves the barometer and, and that moves the needle uh, towards reform so that we have changes in any sort of situation in which women are involved or how they're treated, which is the point, then uh, I think to finish what you were going to say, then we do have some success. We have a measure of success and it's something for which uh, protesters are saying that they're willing to die for, that there needs to be improvement. Um, so I don't want to say that all is lost or there's no point just as a as a clarification um because clearly uh right we have a di in a different world we have this idea that these are the successes that these protests are about um and so if the needle changes on them for women um and their living conditions and how they are treated uh then yes that is uh, very much something to fight for. Yeah, and, and you read my mind because that's where I was going to end actually was that, you know, one hopes and, and wishes that um, maybe not this generation, maybe the generation of Iranian women after that get to openly feel the breeze in their hair and, and be judges, uh, be senior politicians, have equal pay and, and their equal rights in, in the state. And I think um, any any event that moves the needle towards that direction um, may also make the state and the regime itself uh, a bit more soft, uh, a bit more open to hugging its younger people, hugging its marginalized communities. Um, because again, um, our region already has so much going wrong um, that an Iran that is facing crises upon crises is not good for anybody and, and, and the Iranian people themselves um, deserve a lot uh, better. Um, so on that hopeful note, again, thank you so much for taking out the time and, and wish you all the best. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have you in the near future again as these protests evolve and, and to talk about what worked and what didn't and what reforms uh, look like um, in the aftermath of these. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.